sermon text this morning is from Acts chapter 18. I'm going to be reading verses 24 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to get out your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 18. I'm going to back us up and look at verses 18 through 23 as well. So make sure you have access to Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. Uh, We will be completing this part of our journey through Acts in a couple weeks. Next week, we're going to look at the entire chapter of Acts 19. Uh, It's I would really encourage you to read ahead. Acts 19 is crazy. It is crazy. I don't even know what I'm going to do with it next week, but I know it's going to be interesting studying it this week. I mean, you've got demons, you've got riots, you have these people who seem like believers, but I guess they're not, and this baptism of John thing, it's, it's really interesting. You have people receiving the Spirit and then speaking in tongues and prophesying, so make sure you're here next week to see my thoughts on that. I, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, but Acts chapter 19, we're going to deal in one sermon, so we'll see how that goes, but it's really interesting. And then the following week, uh, November 14th, we're going to look at Acts chapter 20. I'm mainly going to be focusing on uh, the last part of Acts 20, starting in verse 17 and going through 38. We'll, we'll find some way to, to um, bring in this, this really interesting story about Eutychus and how he fell asleep during a sermon. You see, I'm, I'm intentional. I'm skipping that one. You know, I'm not giving you guys any biblical warrant to fall asleep during a sermon. Be like, hey, look, Eutychus, he fell asleep. It's like, yeah, he did, and he died. Um, so, uh, you know, we're not, <laughs> we probably won't get into that one too much, but we will be focusing on eldership because on November 14th, we will be presenting elders candidates to you for uh, your um, uh, vote, which will happen three weeks from the 14th. Um, But today, we're in Acts chapter 18. Let me ask you a question. This is a common question that people ask when they're looking for a church. And especially when they grow discontent in the church that they're in, they start to ask this question. What kind of church do I want to be a part of? What kind of church? The problem is not with that question. That's an awesome question. The problem is what is meant by that question. A lot of times when we we say, or when we ask, what kind of church do I want to be a part of? What we mean is, do I want to be a part of a church that is really big? Or do I want to be a part of a church that's really small? Do Do I want to be a part of a church that has particular ministries? Or do I want to be a part of a church that, you know, has has different ministries? Do I want to be a part of a church that does Sunday school? Or do I want to be a part of a church that does small groups? We do both here, so, you know, (laughs) haha, gotcha. Um, But but that's that's usually what we mean when when we ask questions about what kind of church do I want to be a part of. 
That's an important question to ask. And I would ask you, as covenant members of the church at Trace Crossing, your commitment to our church, what kind of church do you want to be a part of? Meaning, what kind of church do you want Trace Crossing to be? And I'll be honest with you, the church leadership plays an important role in setting that pace and setting that direction. But as a body, as a family, we are the ones that are responsible, all of us together, toward fulfilling what we want to be. And if you want to be something that we're not, then we have a problem. I want to be a part of a church that's doing three things. Thriving, growing, and lasting. Thriving, growing, and lasting. A thriving church is a church that is being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Meaning that when you look at a group of people, you look at a church in 2021, and then you look at that same group of people that that are still here together, doing life together, in 2025, in 2025, that group will look more like Jesus than they did in 2021. That's a thriving church. A church that is pursuing Christ-likeness. A church that has people in it who say, today I'm an impatient person. Three years from now, I'm more patient because I'm growing in the likeness of Jesus. Today, I don't share the gospel very often. And then three years from now, you're our most gifted evangelist. A thriving church where people are being equipped, where people are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. I also want to be a part of a growing church. And we've talked about this before in a very specific way. There are two groups of people that we want to reach with the gospel in our city. Those who are unreached, meaning that they have not come to faith in Jesus. Do we desperately want to reach them? They don't know Jesus. They don't have Jesus. Don't we desperately want to come to them and say, come, come to Jesus and he will give you rest? Of course we do. We also want to reach people who are unchurched. This is a highly, historically, a highly churched area. But now there are lots of people who are believers, who are disconnected from the local church. We want to see them connected and plugged into the local church. If not ours, then, then, then someone else. But we want to be a part of a church that is growing. A growing church is a church that is reaching out to others with the gospel that is seeing people come to faith, that is seeing baptisms, that is seeing stagnant Christians reconnect. But I also want to be a part of a lasting church. A lasting church is a church that is looking beyond her own time and that prepares the next generation to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. If you were here last night, Mr. Tommy shared, that was the the initial vision of the church to begin with. It was for the next generation. Listen, we don't stop that. Now, you do realize that, yes, right now the demographics of our church are what they are, but if we all stay together, 10 years from now, if you're in your 20s, you will be in your 30s. 10 years from now, if you're in your 40s, you will be in your 50s. You know, 20 years from now, you're gonna be in a different demographic. And do you know what I want for our church to last? you know how I want our church to last? I want... When we, I'm 30, when I'm 40, I want there to be 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are coming here and still receiving the same gospel and the same discipleship that we all are receiving right now. A lasting church is a church that looks beyond her own time. 
Our church has existed for 15 years this month. 15 years this month. What is most necessary for us to last another 15 years and not just last as in we just survive, but thrive and grow? What's the common denominator? What must we have? Of course we have to have God's grace. Apart from God's grace, no chance. We have no hope apart from God's grace. Assuming God is gracious because, spoiler, he is. Assuming God is powerful because, spoiler, he is. On our end of things, what is most necessary for us? To thrive, to grow, and to last. To have a 30-year anniversary party and then a 45-year anniversary party and then a 60-year anniversary party. Well, first, we need to resist the temptation to only think of our church in terms of the next few Sundays or the next few weeks or the next few months or even the next few years. We need to start thinking about the children who are right now in the nursery, who, who are having to be held by us, that one day, eventually, they are going to be in this room, sitting in, in parents' laps and falling asleep during sermons and, you know, crawling around on the floor and playing with toys. And eventually they will grow and they'll be even older and they'll be sort of listening to sermons and they'll be sort of participating in the life of the church. And eventually they're going to be the 20-year-olds and they're going to be the 30-year-olds. We have to resist the temptation to only think of our church in terms of the next few Sundays or the next few years. In order for our church to grow and thrive and last, we must be, more than anything else, a community of disciples who make more disciples. That's it. That's what's most necessary. Disciple-making, disciple-making must be at the core of who we are as a church, and it must be the bulk of, of what we do as a church. In Acts 18, 18 through 28, we see two things, the need for disciple-making, and then we see the mechanics of disciple-making. So we're gonna ask two questions this morning of this passage. Why make disciples? Question one. Why make disciples? Why, why, why is disciple-making necessary for our church to thrive and grow and last? Why, why do it? Second, how do we do it? If it's that important, if I'm right, if, if, and I, I believe this is what Jesus, the New Testament writers have laid out for us as a church to be a church that focuses more than anything else on making disciples. If that's true, how do we do it? How, what do we do? What are the mechanics? What, what, what tools do we need? How do we do it? We're gonna ask those two questions of this passage. Okay, first question. Why do we make Disciples. We're going to see the need for disciple-making in the fact that Paul revisits churches that he planted. So jump back to verse 18 in Acts chapter 18. Here's, here's what we read. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So if you remember, Paul was in Corinth he had spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth, and so now he is traveling, he's setting sail, he's leaving the city of Corinth, and he's going back to Syria. Um, and then we, we, if you jump down, we read here in verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, they, they have a pit stop, they stop in the city of Ephesus where you know, we're gonna spend a lot of time the next two weeks. 
And he left them there. So Paul, he drops Priscilla and Aquila off here in Ephesus, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews because Paul cannot help himself. He's like, I'm not here to stay, but there's a synagogue. I have the gospel. I have to go. I have to go and talk about Jesus. I mean, maybe he was, I don't know, maybe he was a masochist. He just loved suffering or something. You know, it's like, Paul, buddy, the synagogue thing is not working out, but he can't resist. He has to go and tell his people about Jesus because maybe someone will come to faith. Okay, anyway, he does not stay in Ephesus. Now, they want him to stay, but he's like, if the Lord wills, I, I, I will return to you. I will return to Ephesus. Well, then he leaves. He, he goes back. He essentially goes back to Jerusalem. We're not told that he visits Jerusalem, but he most likely visited Jerusalem. He greets the church, the people in that area, and then we're told in verse 22, he goes back to Antioch, and Antioch is his home church. So the church at Antioch is the church that sent him out on mission. There's home church, so he returns to his home church, and he visits with them. And then in verse 23, we're told something really interesting after spending some time there so now it's pretty clear as we're mapping things out Paul has concluded what we call his second missionary journey so his second missionary journey has come to an end and and he's he's you know stopped here he's taking a break he's getting some reprieve from his home church so you you would think that what's going to happen next is he's going to start his third missionary journey and he's going to go to people who have yet to, to believe in Jesus. We expect after he receives some, you know, uh, needed rest in his home church of Antioch, that in verse 23 we're told, and then Paul set sail for Ephesus. He went back to Ephesus. And that's not what we're told. Look what Paul does. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay. Here's why this is important. Although Paul desires to go to Ephesus to share the gospel there, he chooses instead to revisit the churches that he had helped plant. I mean, Paul is the ultimate circle back guy, you know, the guy in the, in the meeting. Hey, guys, let's circle back, you know, to this or whatever. And it's like, that's the only phrase the dude knows, you know, let's circle back. Paul is ultimate circle back guy. Okay, so he literally circles back. He is going back to all of these churches. And by the way, he suffered in almost all of these places. In almost all of these places, he was beaten. But again, he goes through these regions he returns to the churches that were planted in Derby and Lystra and Iconium and in Pisidia, Antioch. He goes to, throughout these regions and visits all these churches again. Paul, the successful, effective evangelist and church planner, chooses to revisit established churches rather than immediately go back to Ephesus. Why? Well, it's because of the importance of disciple-making. Disciple-making is necessary for our church and any church to thrive because the mission of God is to make disciples, not converts. Do you see this? Paul is not content to just leave these churches on their own. You're converted. You believed in Jesus that one day. You raised the hand. You signed a card. You walked an aisle. You believed. Now you're good. You know, once saved, always saved, baby. I'm about to write that stuff down here in some of my letters. You know, I'm, you're good. That's not the mission, to just see people converted. The mission is to make disciples. Conversion is the beginning of salvation, not the end. If conversion was the end goal of the mission that Jesus gave to us, Paul would have no need to revisit these churches. Initial faith in Jesus would be all that matters. 
Conversion is how we receive new life. And the whole point of salvation is that we live the new life that we receive through faith in Jesus. So in his New Testament letters, Paul, he he teaches it in these three ways. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Paul teaches that, number one, we have been saved, past tense. We have been saved. He also teaches in other places that we are being saved, as if there's a process. And then it's crazy, there are other places in the New Testament letters where Paul actually speaks of our salvation as something that's out for us in the future, that we will one day be saved. How how is he able to do this? He's able to do it because all of them are true. Salvation does begin at the moment of conversion when we first believe in Jesus. So we can say we were saved when we first came to faith. The, The word for that is justification. But then salvation is also a process and, and, and it progresses throughout our Christian lives as we follow Jesus day by day. We are formed and we are shaped into the likeness of Jesus. We repent and we believe on, a, on an ongoing basis. And, and the word for that is sanctification. But then there's this other sense that we will one day be saved, that our salvation is not complete until the end. When Christ returns, we are raised bodily from the grave and we reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's called glorification. Paul one day would end up synthesizing all of this and he puts it all in just a couple of verses in Romans 8. It's been called the golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God guarantees by his sovereign grace that salvation will be completed for all whom it began. Paul says this when he writes back to the church at Philippi. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, say all that to say, it was vitally important for Paul to revisit his spiritual children because he knew that they would need help in this new journey. Salvation is not all about conversion. And contentment with conversion is a common hindrance to disciple-making in the church. We come to faith, good. As parents, what what do we pray for? We pray for the day of salvation for our children. Well, I know what you mean, you mean the day of conversion. But if that's really all you're after, um, you don't understand the point of disciple-making. The point of disciple-making is not to get people to say they believe in Jesus one time and then we're done with them. The point of disciple-making is to replicate the image of Christ in others. Disciple-making will not happen if we don't feel the urgency to grow spiritually if we're just content with our conversion. So the mission of the church is to make disciples, not converts. We are called to work out our salvation, not just as individuals, but together as a church to help one another grow in Christ. We're like flowers, you know, that have been planted. It's, the planting is very important. You have to, they have to be planted if they're going to live. But what, what do they need? They need nutrients. They need, they need water. They need sunlight. They have to grow. A flower will, will die otherwise. Paul revisits the churches that he planted to further disciple them, to provide food and water, to help them grow and thrive. He revisits these churches because the goal of Jesus' mission is Christ-likeness, not conversion. 
This is why disciple-making is necessary in the church, and this is why we have to keep it at the center of our church in what we, in what we do, because we're not there yet. We're still being saved. One day we will be saved. Our mission is to pursue Christ-likeness in ourselves and in one another. So disciple-making is the process of replicating the likeness or the image of Jesus in one another. And it's needed because none of us are there yet. Now for us to live by the mission of disciple-making, we have to first see its importance and its necessity. It is enough that Jesus commanded us to make disciples. Jesus commanded it, that's enough, we need to do it. But we need to see why he commanded it. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, through the coming of the Spirit, Jesus has created a new people in his likeness. Making disciples helps us realize and experience this reality. So discipleship is, or disciple making is needed in the church. And we see that because Paul revisited the churches. One more thing I want you to see here. We need to ask, how do we do this? We make disciples because that's the point of salvation, for us to be like Christ. But how do we do it? And we see this in Priscilla and Aquila. So what I read before in verses 24 through 28, we're introduced to a new character in the book of Acts, a new person in history, and his name is Apollos. As Paul is revisiting his church plants, Luke decides in, in verse 24 to take us all the way back to Ephesus. So meanwhile, in Ephesus, there's a Jew named Apollos, and, and he's a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus, and, and Luke tells us he's an eloquent man. He's competent in the scriptures. Apollos was a Jew, okay? He was a Jew who had been converted to Christianity, and he is from Alexandria. Alexandria is a hub of philosophy. It is a philosopher's haven. I mean, we're, you're familiar with the ancient library of Alexandria. I mean, that is where the intellectuals were. That is where the elites were. That is where the, the, I mean, the geniuses of the day would go and be educated. The most educated people in the Roman world, they came from Alexandria. So Apollos is this hyper-intellectual man who had been converted to Christianity, and so he is ultra-competent in the scriptures. He is a super-gifted interpreter. I mean, Apollos, if he were alive today, he would be invited to speak at all of the big conferences. He would be, I mean, they would be book deals galore for Apollos. They would be asking him to come and speak. I mean, he would have, he would have an itinerary, a schedule for the next three years of speaking, uh, speaking engagements. He'd be on every podcast. He'd have his own podcast. Apollos was the man. Now, Luke tells us that Apollos started teaching and preaching in the synagogues in the city of Ephesus. Now, if you remember, Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus because Paul dropped them off there before he headed back to Jerusalem. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they're in attendance at one of these synagogue gatherings, and there's the masterful teacher, Apollos, and he's standing up, and he is showing people from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. He would have had a specific gift for this. And honestly, that's easy for us to see because while most of us can probably go to Isaiah 53 and say, oh yeah, that's about Jesus, there are other places in the scriptures that allude to the coming of Christ, but it's just not that obvious. But a super gifted teacher like Apollos would be able to see that and show the people. He was a gifted interpreter, he was a gifted speaker, and here he is teaching. Now Priscilla and Aquila, 
are ordinary Christians, as far as we know. Well, we're not told anything special about them in terms of their role in the church. They're not leaders in the church. Uh, they're tent makers, right? They, they have a nine to five. They have an ordinary job, um, but they're friends with Paul. They're, they're faithful believers. They're in the synagogue listening to Apollos. And it is very interesting what they decide to do. They listen to this sermon that Apollos preaches. And then they decide after the sermon to invite him over for lunch. They're like, hey, Apollos, would you mind coming over? They pull him to the side and uh, just read it. Look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So it's, I love how Luke highlights this for us. Bold Apollos teaching with authority and with skill. And here's ordinary Priscilla and Aquila. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, listen to this, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. I mean, it's like Luke is owning Apollos here, you know? It's like this masterful teacher, and, it's, and you have this ordinary couple, and they pull Apollos to the side because Apollos doesn't have it all figured out. And they, these ordinary Christians, have to show him and teach him the way of God more accurately. And this is after Luke had said in verse 25, he spoke, speaking of Apollos, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But they pull him to the side because though he had a lot figured out, he was deficient and a lot of his areas of understanding and, and a lot of things that he said. At minimum, we know that he knew only the baptism of John. I'm gonna get into that issue more next week, but suffice it to say, uh, Apollos, though a genuine believer, did not have an accurate understanding of Christian baptism. So that was one issue here, and there may have been more that they observed. Um, we can learn a few things about disciple-making from Priscilla and Aquila. Specifically, we learn three necessary components of disciple-making that must become a part of our church's DNA if we're gonna be making disciples. Three, you ready? You have, you have something to write with? You have, you have notes? Okay. I've mentioned these words in the past. We did a whole series on these words. They are crucial to our church's mission to make disciple. Doctrine, culture, and mission. We see all three right here in this passage. Doctrine, culture, and mission. Three steps or three ways to make disciples. Number one, doctrine. We have to teach the word of the Lord. Doctrine, we teach the word of the Lord. Making disciples must involve teaching others the word of the Lord. We can call this doctrine. That's what we see Paul doing. Everywhere he goes, even whenever he takes a pit stop and drops off uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they're like, hey, Paul, have, have a good journey. You know, we, we'll be praying for you. Can we lay hands on you before you leave? Yeah, real quick, I'm gonna go in the synagogue um, and I'm gonna teach a little bit before, before I head out. You know? that's, that's Paul's version of a pit stop. He's constantly teaching others the word of the Lord. This is how he's making disciples. And it's what we see Priscilla and Aquila doing here. They, they bring this masterful teacher, Apollos, to the side. They, they Most likely, it doesn't say they brought him into to their home, but most likely they brought him into their home, showed him hospitality, and taught him the way of the Lord more accurately, meaning they opened the scriptures to him. They told him things that they, the oral tradition about Jesus at this point, things they had heard about Jesus, like, hey, you may not be familiar uh, you know, with this, but here's something that Jesus taught about this thing. And they are teaching him the word of the Lord. Our disciple making must be word driven. It must be driven by the word of God. And this is because 
Part of becoming a disciple of Jesus is knowing God more. And God has revealed himself to us in his word. It is through God's word that we come to see and savor who God is. But disciple making must include teaching the word of the Lord also because our faith depends on knowledge. Think about it. Like we we have a faith, but that faith depends on reason. That faith depends on Knowledge. We can't believe in Jesus unless we know something about who he is and what he has done. How are you going to share the gospel with someone this week if you do not know the word of the Lord? You can't. Discipling someone requires you to teach them the word of the Lord. Um, now, you do not have to be a gifted teacher to do this. If you're a disciple, you're called to make disciples. And if you're making disciples, you must teach the word of the Lord, but you don't have to be a gifted teacher to do this. If, if you're sitting here thinking, okay, how can I teach the word of the Lord? I guess I need to go to the elders and say, can I teach the next equipping class? Because I, I feel like I need to respond to the sermon. I need to teach a class or whatever. No, that's, that's not what's in view here. You, you don't even have to be in some kind of formal one-on-one like mentorship in the church. Like You don't have to have a discipleship partner. We, we encourage that here, but you don't have to have that to teach others in our church. My favorite times are when I'm with some of you, and, and we may just be relaxing. We may just be hanging out, but something gets brought up in a conversation, and one of you mentions something that you remember from the Bible. So, something that you read that morning and you just, you tell us about. That's you teaching. That's discipleship. Where we're just hanging out or, or maybe there is like a really uh, difficult situation we're facing and then the, wor- the Lord brings his word to mind and we encourage one another with it. That's what teaching one another looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. Teaching the word is necessary for disciple making because this is how we pass down and pass along the story of the gospel. If we want to disciple our children here not just parents but all of us together discipling our children we have to tell them the story we have to tell them things about the lord we have to tell them who jesus is and what he came to do we teach others about who jesus is what jesus did and why it matters and if you're a disciple of jesus you are a disciple maker and if you are a disciple maker you are a teacher Okay, so that's, that's one part. We, doctrine is necessary. We have to teach the word of the Lord. But something else we see here about disciple making. We also have to show the way of the Lord. So we teach the word of the Lord, but we also need to show the way of the Lord. And we call this culture. We need to have a gospel culture here. Making disciples must also involve showing other people here the way of God. Disciple-making that only passes along information will always be deficient and will always be incomplete. And it is very important to teach others. It is necessary for us to teach others with our words what to believe about Jesus, doctrine. But it is just as important to show people with our very lives how to live for Jesus, culture. You will show... Okay, if you're in a season of suffering... And, and you remain in community with people here. And other people see how you respond to suffering with faithfulness to the Lord. That will disciple them far more than leading them through a Bible study. For them to see you walk with the Lord in faithfulness. If you are a person who shares the gospel and you're hanging out with other people in our church and they see you 
have gospel conversations, that will disciple them far more effectively than if you sat down with them and said, hey, let's read through this book on evangelism together. If, if you're in a situation where someone has wronged you and you choose a way of forgiveness, you choose the way of grace, you choose the way of mercy, you choose the way of saying, yeah, I want to vindicate myself here, but you know what? I'm gonna let that go and entrust this situation to the Lord. That will disciple someone much further than doing a Bible study on Romans 12. And it's important to do Bible studies on Romans 12. It's important to teach the word of the Lord. But if we're teaching the word of the Lord and not showing the way of the Lord, we will be contradictions of ourselves. Priscilla and Aquila could have taught Apollos about baptism and whatever else he was lacking in the most obnoxious way possible. Imagine the opportunity for someone who wanted to just get this genius Apollos here. The opportunity. Apollos is standing up there confidently teaching the word and for Priscilla and Aquila to be sitting there and be like, oh boy, he is getting this so wrong. And some of you may be thinking this right now about this preacher. Like, oh boy, oh boy, please choose the way of Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila, what they decide to do is not stand up. They could have done this, by the way, in the synagogue. Stand up and say, excuse me, excuse me, Mr. Apollos, Mr. Elitist, Mr. Uh, uh, educated Man from Alexandria. I need to point out a few errors in what you just said and just own him in that moment. They, they, they could have even just waited till after the service and in front of everyone there said, Apollos, like, you're a really smart guy, but you, know, you have a lot of errors here, brother. Like, we, we need to, we need to you know, correct you here. It's my responsibility to call you out. What do they do? They took him aside. They didn't have to do that. You know why they did that? They're making disciples. They're not just teaching him the word of the Lord. They're showing him the way of the Lord. They showed him a gospel culture as they were sharpening his gospel doctrine. Priscilla and Aquila, they take Apollos to the side, meaning they didn't embarrass him in public. They brought him to their home. They showed him hospitality. They shared a meal with him. And then they taught him what he was lacking. It was important for Apollos to know God's word more accurately. That was crucial because he is a gifted teacher and that means he's gonna be teaching a lot of people so his errors need to be corrected and that was vital. But it was maybe even more important that he experienced the love of God through his brother and sister in Christ. If we are going to effectively make disciples, we must have a spirit of gentleness about us. As we are teaching one another the word of the Lord, we have to show the way of the Lord. We must be known for our gentleness, known for our compassion, known for our patience. In other words, as we are teaching people about Jesus, we need to demonstrate the character of Jesus. And and we probably all need to ask ourselves if our disciple-making efforts are demonstrating the character of Jesus or not. Disciple-making is not just about producing people full of knowledge about God. I'm sorry, that is not enough for me because I don't believe that's what Jesus is calling us to, to just be the most knowledgeable people in the world about the Bible. That's not the point. The point, once again, is Christ-likeness, to be like him. What's the point of all that knowledge? So that we can become people who look like Jesus, become newer people, 
Disciple making is the process of replicating the image of Christ in his people. So we should be producing people full of love and grace. We actually have a decent metric for whether we're making disciples in our church or not. And it's like I said, if a few months, if a few years down the road, you look more like Jesus, you are most likely in a culture of disciple making. If you look less like Jesus, you're not being discipled. If we increase our knowledge, but none of us look like Jesus, I'm sorry, we're failing. Now, disciple making also requires humility. Because do you notice, do you notice Apollos here? Apollos also had a moment where he could have jumped back at Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos is the educated man from Alexandria. He's the, he's the Harvard, he's the Yale graduate coming back and someone, oh really, you're gonna tell me what I'm not understanding? Are you kidding me? He had such an opportunity here. How easy it would have been for him to just overlook them, to ignore them. Hey, would you mind coming over? I wanna show you the way of God more accurately. <laughs> more accurately, have a good day, you know? Um, that's, that's not what we see from Apollos. Although he's highly gifted, he submits to their teaching. How do we know? Look, verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is the region where Corinth is, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed it wasn't until he had received this discipleship from Priscilla and Aquila that he requested to go to Corinth, to go on mission. He valued this disciple-making from Priscilla and Aquila. A culture of mutual submission is necessary for a culture of disciple-making to take root in a church. We must be willing to submit to one another. It is not easy to look at someone and say, you're right, I'm wrong. But we're not going to be discipling one another if we're unwilling and unable to do that. We have to. It's what Jesus has called us to. If we are unwilling to listen to one another, or if we think that we are above one another, then we will not be able to disciple one another. If disciple-making for you only goes in one direction, meaning Bring me the people who need discipled. I will disciple you. I just discipled you. Go on your way. Who's next? Who's next? I'll disciple you. And if you're unwilling to be discipled yourself, you don't get it. You don't understand. None of us are there yet. Are you there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. No, just like the trips with your kids. We're not there yet. So we need to continue to disciple one another. We all, like Apollos, have deficiencies. There's one more thing we see here, uh, one more component to disciple making. So there's doctrine, there's culture. Finally, there's mission. So we, we need to teach the word of the Lord. We need to show the way of the Lord. And finally, we need to share the gospel of the Lord. One more way to make disciples. Making disciples must involve sharing the gospel with those who have yet to believe. And we can call this mission. Now, I want you to notice what this disciple making from Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos produced. It produced something really clear and really important. And it should be highly motivating for us to get on board with this and start making disciples in our church. So uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they bring Apollos to the side. They disciple him. 
They spend time with him. They invest in him. They're teaching him. They're showing him what Jesus is like. This produced a more whole and healthy disciple. But more than that, what do we see happen in Apollos after he's discipled? He turns and disciples others. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. So he arrives in the region where Corinth is. The brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So now he's on his way to Corinth. He arrives in Corinth, fresh off being discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. And what does he do? When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He arrives, and what's he immediately start doing? Making disciples at the church in Corinth. He had been discipled, now he's making disciples. You see what it produces? Not only does disciple-making reproduce the image of Christ in us, but it's a continual reproduction. Then the image of Christ that's been reproduced in us is reproduced in others. As we teach them and show them the way of the Lord, as we share the gospel with them, we see it even further. He, he uh, Go down in 28. So not only is he discipling those who are already believers, but it says in verse 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila produced a disciple who made disciples. And this is the key. This is how our church will not only thrive here and now, this is how our church will both grow and last. Or maybe I should just say this is my dream for how our church will last. We, we, we could maybe do some things to guarantee our survival you know, we might could even guarantee, or do some things that would guarantee our survival until the Lord returns. Who knows? But there's only so much we, we are willing to do. I don't want our church to exist because we're doing whatever it takes to get more money and more people in here. That's, that's not what I want. I want us to thrive. I want us to grow. And I want us to last because we are growing and because we are thriving through disciple-making. I want us to last because the image of Christ is being replicated in each of us and then through us to others. I want us to be making disciples among ourselves and then I want us to be making disciples of those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus. So you disciple someone here they disciple someone else. They disciple someone else. A culture of discipleship starts to happen. We disciple people in our city. They come to faith, and when they come to faith, remember, conversion's not the end. It's an endless cycle. Conversion's not the end. Then they start making disciples. This is how the glory of the Lord will one day fill the earth. As the Lord created humanity in his image, he has recreated humanity in the image of Christ. And as we make disciples here into the ends of the earth, that is how God's glory will spread. I want us to last as a church because disciples are being made, because disciples are being equipped, and then disciples are being sent to make more disciples of Jesus, all for his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful.